you are there, hot, hot, hot you are, and in your face on 3CR as we gear up for Midsummer. One fabulous production happening during the festival is The Milf and Mistress. And we're joined by playwright Jane Montgomery Griffiths. Jane, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. It's a pretty groundbreaking production. You explore sex and dominatrixes and uh, sexuality and desire for older lesbians and you have a real-life dominatrix from the community in every show. It sounds awesome. Well, uh, yes, I mean, (laughs) I hope so. I mean, we're at that stage yet where it's still in rehearsal, so I don't want to be hubristic. Um, it's certainly a lot of fun, and I think it is very different and uh, quite challenging to perceptions of middle-aged women going invisible and um, disappearing into the night quietly. Um, so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun and um, a great experience exploring this world, which was new to me, so I've had to do a lot of research. You know, I filled out a survey this week that was looking at our community and body image uh, as we gear up for all of these festivals. And one of the comments I made was that for lesbians, there's this real invisibility, like you just mentioned, and um, so little when it comes to sex and, and, and lesbians and older lesbians. And you're just nailing it. You're actually doing something where there's a real gap. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think I started to notice this when the L word came out, you know, the original version. And, of course, this is back in the, what was it, the noughties, I think. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 54, so I suffered through Thatcher's Britain and Clause 28 and, you know, all of the shame and discrimination we had. And I, I actually had to migrate to Australia to be with my partner because we weren't allowed to stay together in the UK. Um, so when, when the L word came out, I remember thinking, oh, fantastic, lesbians. And I remember looking at it thinking, I don't recognize myself in this at all. My God, these are, where are the haircuts? Where are the shoes? Where are, it, was, it was really interesting how um, with the rise of post-feminism, this sort of post-lesbian world started to materialize where um, the traditional parameters of lesbian identity and lesbian sexuality were really challenged and sometimes disappeared. Um, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. And I think that the openness in the community now is really wonderful. You know, I'm delighted that my, my daughters won't grow up with the, the shame and the, the necessity to define yourself that, that um, my wife and I had. Um, but at the same time, now that there is a fluidity, I think that women of my age can sometimes feel um, both invisible and also confused, um, not, not antagonistically confused, but just we want to understand what happened to our community. Um, it seems to have gone. And at the same time, I mean, certainly for my generation where we wanted to have children and we actually wanted to conform, um, you know, we spent the first 10 years of our daughters' lives in suburban Melbourne very much buying into the hetero hell stereotype of the quarter-acre block, um, being the only gays in Carnegie at the time. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing what that does, where you try to fit into a community to which you don't really belong, you don't really know where you belong, and the long-term effects that has. So um, in this play, I mean, my, my partner and I escaped, you know, we went off to, to rainbow-hued Castle, Maine. Um, but in this play, the main character is still stuck in suburban hell and in her 50s is feeling increasingly invisible. And, of course, lesbian bed death has kicked in long ago. Flamlet pyjamas and Scrabble have um, replaced sex. Um, so it's, um, it's been a lot of fun and also a little bit painful to explore that. And I hope that some women in the audience 
will find their, a, a voice for their experiences. I mean, having said that, this isn't exclusively a lesbian play. I think that lots of um, lots of people will, will find things to relate to. But I am aware that as the lesbian visibility in media increases, it has become increasingly a queer visibility, which is fantastic. But um, the thing that I don't think I've ever seen on stage... 50-something lesbian bodies, 50-something lesbians talking about sex. Um, so, yeah, it's been fun to do this, and hopefully it will confound a few stereotypes. I think it'll bring a lot of joy to the community as well. I know that's not an obvious word for this, but, I mean, a lot of lesbians are asking that question, what happened to our community? And it sounds like you're asking that as well, and you're giving them something back. Yeah, well, um, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I, so where we live, we live at just outside Castlemaine in the country. And remarkably, we've gone from being the only gays in the village in Carnegie to being, um, well, actually, the lesbians are the majority where I live. <laughs> but, you know, we're all middle-aged lesbians. I mean, and we're all a bit sort of tired. Um, and they're kind of shocked that I've written this play. I should give you the genesis of it. It was actually a joke. Guy Tolson, the director and the general manager of Theatre Works, wanted me to act in a play um, for her. And we looked at a script, which was just dreadful. So we started mucking around, sending each other jokey texts about what we would call a play if we were working on one together. And The Milf and the Mistress was suggested as a joke. I mean, it was absolutely just a joke. And from that, that jokey title, I decided to write a play based around the title. So it wasn't something that I had personal experience with the kink community or I didn't want to tell a particular story. It was literally, this is the title, now let's build a play around it. Um, my mates, my other lesbian mates, are kind of shocked at quite the radical journey that the heroine goes on because she goes from suburban slumber to discovering the joys of kink and it um, revolutionises her self-identity um, in a really hopefully beautiful way. Um, so you know, not every woman in the audience will want to take that journey, but I do think every woman in the audience, gay, straight, non-binary, queer, whatever, trans, every, every woman will get a sense of, ah, yes, there's something here I can relate to. I just see rows of lesbians in the theatre just howling with laughter, even though well, it's not so, meant we, to be we funny. About, but yeah, we, we were talking about how to pace laughs today, and there are gags about lesbian haircuts, les, uh, hairy underarms, and um, short nails. And and I was just saying to the actress, you know, you can probably just leave a beat after this because if it's if it's a dikey audience. There's going to be a bit of laughter here. If it's a straight audience, nah, just run through it. They won't get the joke at all. But yes, there are a few in-jokes that will appeal to the older dyke out there. Tell us about that performer, Jennifer Velutic. She's extraordinary. So Jen is somebody I have loved as an actress for uh, the 25 years I've been in Australia. I've always wanted to work with her. We've never managed it. We've done a couple of workshops, but we've never been on stage together because I'm usually, uh, well, I'm as much, I'm probably more of an actor than I am a playwright. I mean, I've, I've written lots of plays, but um, I'm more known as an actor. Um, so it's always been on our wish list that somebody will put us together because we're, we're quite similar. We're both almost six foot and we're very strong, classically trained actors. Um, nobody's found a project for the two of us to act in yet. There are any directors out there. This is a shameless pitch. Um, but I thought the next best thing is to write a play for her. 
So the moment Di and I decided to do it, um, I rang up Jen and I said, look, I've got this crazy idea to write a one-woman show about a middle-aged suburban lesbian who goes to a dominatrix. What do you think? And she said, yep, I'm up for it. And it's been an absolute, um, it's such a privilege being in the room with her, hearing her speak my words. She's quite simply one of the best actresses in Australia. I was looking through your bio. You've done a lot of Shakespeare. I have, yes. Um, I, I've, um, I've done a fair bit. Well, I've done a lot in the UK and I've done quite a few shows with Belle Shakespeare. And in fact, this year I'm off on tour for five months, the national tour of Twelfth Night, playing um, a female Malvolio, Malvolia. So there's another bit of uh, lesbian subtext which will be coming out as Malvolia falls madly in love with Olivia. Um, I'll, I'll be fascinated to do that and see what the director comes up with. And at the other end of the spectrum, your acting credits include Miss Fisher's modern murder mysteries on TV. That's quite a contrast to Shakespeare. Oh, it was an absolute hoot. So Jerry Hakewell, who plays Miss Fisher, she was Lady Macbeth in the MTC Macbeth. I was witch number one. And um, we became mates doing that show. And uh, uh, my agent contacted me and said, oh, yeah, have a look at this script. And so, of course, it is a middle-aged lesbian ornithologist. Um, and uh, I rang up Jerry and said, Did, uh, um, uh, my agent's just contacted me about this. And she said, yeah, I thought of you immediately. I've, I've put the casting director onto you. So it was great. I was able to, to channel my inner Radcliffe Hall. And she was not only the butcher's dyke I have ever played, but she also had to do Peregrine Falcon um, impressions, which stretched my acting ability. It was a lot of fun. Tell us about these dominatrixes in, in your production. Oh, incredible women. Incredible. So, I, as I say, I don't know anything about the scene. Um, uh, and um, I've, uh, you know, I've been with my wife for 28 years, um, so I'm a very, very monogamous and faithful woman. Um, but I knew that I needed to do some really serious research because I think it's very important that this subject is treated with respect. So um, I contacted several professional mistresses, and I met up with them, and they were simply amazing. Their generosity of spirit, their openness, their kindness, their intelligence, they were simply wonderful. Um, you know, one in particular, we, we talked for, I think, about two hours. It was like we were best friends by the end of the conversation. And um, everything they do is done with so much care, so much thought, so much training. You know, the apprenticeship is two years. Uh, so it's it's a it's an utter skill. It's an utter. I mean, it's in many ways like acting because, of course, they have to improvise and they have to improvise with the person that they their client. Um, they have to find a way of imagining different ways of facilitating their client's fantasies, and it's actually very therapeutic. You know, it's something which is a catharsis for the client. Um, one of the things that's sort of interesting about the timing of this play is uh, I started writing it before the, the movie Good Luck Leo Grand came out. Um, in that movie, Emma Thompson uh, hires a male sex worker to introduce her to the sex that she never got with her husband. And there's a line in it when Emma Thompson's character is saying, this should be on the national health. It's, it's therapy. Uh, and again and again, the stories that these wonderful women were telling me were making me think, yes, it is therapeutic. Of course it is. It's this, it, not only a physical release of endorphins, but it's a, 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 it's a, a wonderful way of releasing pent-up emotion. 
So I have the utmost respect for the women that I met. And uh, it was a real privilege getting to know some of them. And your timing is exquisite because this is the first midsummer festival where sex work has been decriminalised in Victoria. Yes, yes, and about time too. Absolutely about time. Um, you, you know, on so many levels, both because the stigma about sex work should be taken away, the st- stigma about uh, seeking a, a professional worker to help you through your sexual issues is, is significant, but also just in terms of the safety of sex workers. It's, it's crucial. And I'm, you know, it's, it's taken too long for it to happen, and thank God it's happened now. And you're really adding to that conversation around older women hiring sex workers, which isn't actually a conversation we have very often. No, I mean, it's so taboo. And I, I have to say, I loved Leo Grand. I thought it was a, it was a beautiful little film. Um, of course, I was asking uh, the dominatrices, do you get many lesbians? And it was really interesting, the, the answers. Um, what did they clearly, say? Well, some mistresses clearly appealed to a certain clientele. So there was one mistress who had never had lesbians. Um, she'd done scenes with heterosexual couples to explore um, uh, you know, lesbian sex, but um, no, never, never straight. Le- uh, I was going to say never straight lesbians. That doesn't work well. Never, never um, lesbians on their own terms. There was another who has pretty much a fifty-fifty clientele. Wow. Um, so it's um, yeah. I mean, I were, were I a sociologist and wanting a PhD study, I think that would be it. Now, your director fascinates me. It's Diane Toulson, who is, um, you know, an extraordinary executive director in the in the local theatre industry, but it's her directional debut. That's pretty exciting. I know. I know. Um, you know, and I've not made it easy for her because though you would think that a one-woman show is the easiest thing to direct, it's it's actually very tricky. It's a very nuanced form of direction. As an actor, I've I've been in quite a few one-woman shows and... You need a very subtle touch. So um, she's she's doing really well, and she's um, seized seized the bull by the horns. Some of the original things have changed, so there is no longer um, a dominatrix every night. I'll just flag that up so there's no false advertising. That was the original idea. But I think one of the things, too, that directors realize is the original plan that you have four or five months before actually directing a show can often change. And we've realised that Jen is such a brilliant actor that we don't need as much as we thought we needed to tell the story. You know, her, she and her body in the space is enough to tell the story. Um, and what she's doing is just beautiful. Now, I have to ask you, I've been looking through what you've written and there was one title that really jumped out to me. You wrote an ox stand on my tongue. Tell us about I that did. production. Yeah, um, well, this that is a quotation from Aeschylus's Oresteia, when the the watchman is watching the the um, he's, he's he's trying not to say that Clytemnestra the queen has been having an affair, and he says for the rest, well, look, an ox stand on my tongue. I'm not gonna we're not going to talk about what's been going on. So this play was um, a riff on Helen and Clytemnestra, and so I wanted to think to myself, what would who are these characters now? You know, the two most vilified women next to Medea in Greek mythology. You've got Clytemnestra, who kills her husband and is then killed by her son. You've got Helen of Troy, who starts the Trojan War. What about if they were translated into, um, well, what now we would say is, is the real Melbourne wives? You know, that sort of ridiculously opulent but totally sterile posh suburban landscape um so it's it's had a it's had a very um 
it's had a strange history. Um, it won an award, which was lovely. It was it was done. Um, it's had lots of times that it's almost made it to the main stage, but various things have got in the way. But it's been taken up by Belvoir in Sydney and is due for production this year. Fascinatingly, an Indigenous director has taken it up and she sees in it the Indigenous stories, the lost stories of her family. So it's an all-Indigenous cast, it's an all-Indigenous team. It's not what I wrote. I mean, I have no right to write, to, 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 to pertain to, write about the, purport to write about the Indigenous experience. I wouldn't do that. Um, but I, I am so delighted and excited that um, this director has said, no, no, this is this is the story of my aunties. This is the story of my mother, um, and uh, I will go as a as an in awe audience member uh, in the middle of the year to Belvoir to see it. Um, fascinated to see what the new interpretation does for my words. What an honour! You must have been so honoured when 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 she said that to you, and you just must have felt so embraced, and really um, so so timely with Invasion Day next week. Absolutely, because um, what we talked about was that these stories, the reason the Greek myths still hang around in our culture is because they touch on universals. Um, And uh, for her, the universals in Greek mythology are the same as the universals of her stolen generation um, uh, relatives and also some of the the dreaming stories – so, uh, you know, I'm really aware. I'm, I'm a POM who migrated to Australia 20 years ago. I, I am in awe of Aboriginal culture, but I have no right to try to say that story. But I'm just so, so delighted that she could find stuff in it. it I think it will be a really fascinating production. You've also got a production of The Clouds scheduled for this year. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is great fun. Um, this is the Stork Theatre in Melbourne, which is run by the wonderful Helen Madden. Um, so uh, Helen used to run the Stork Pub, if anyone remembers that down I in the do. street. Such a great pub. And in the back room, she used to have what she'd call theatre of the mind. Um, so she commissioned playwrights. In fact, she commissioned me to write my first ever play, play about Sappho, um, back in, what, 12, 15 years ago, I think now. Um, so she also has been instrumental in the development over the years of the Fairfield Amphitheatre. And to celebrate its I, I, I'm sorry, I should know, but I don't know what anniversary it is. But to celebrate that, she's asked me to do a very cheeky adaptation of an Aristophanes comedy. So the, the Aristophanes is called The Clouds, and in it, a bloke is so d- distraught at his profligate son's fixation with um, the cavalry that he wants to send him off to Socrates University, which is called the Thinking Tank, which is where Socrates sits on a cloud and contemplates the universe. So in updating it, I'm thinking, okay, well, the cloud turns into the cloud, turns into meta. Um, so Socrates, I'm currently thinking, is Socrates Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? And I'm thinking about maybe um, it, it's probably going to turn into a big commentary on gaslighting, Twitter, Insta, TikTok, all of that, which um, the classicists, I mean, I am a classicist, right? I, I used to be an ancient Greek scholar. The, classic, the, the traditional classicists might not like, but it is kind of in keeping with quite how scurrilous and cheeky Aristophanes actually is. So um, I've only just started writing it. It's going to be a lot of fun, very different from the Milf and the Mistress. Um, that's, yeah, that's the next cab off the rank. And, of course, the MILF and Mistress is at TheatreWorks, uh, the Explosives Factory, 67 Inkerman Street in St Kilda, as part of Midsummer. 
from January, yeah, 27 to February 4, and you've got a, a live DJ and dancing after performances, yeah? I'm not sure if that's still happening, but then I have only just come back into the room after being in the UK, so that's probably one to check out with TheatreWorks. I'm sorry I don't know all that info. Definitely we were going to. Not sure if that's happening now, but whatever happens, it will still be a great night out. Jane Montgomery Griffiths, thank you so much for chatting with me about your wonderful and groundbreaking production, The Milfin Mistress. Thank you so much. Uh, it's thank a fabulous you. part of Midsummer. And yep, you are in your face on 3CR. And here's Ella Fitzgerald. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> thank you. I think we would like to throw just one pretty tune in before we do the next song sort of put you to sleep for a moment. Summertime And the living is easy Fish are jumping And the cotton Your daddy's rich And your ma is good looking So hush, little baby What a voice, live in Berlin, the legendary Ella Fitzgerald there. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, 
to me and this community here, we've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.
white stripes there, Seven Nation Army. I am thrilled to have Mama Elto and Josh Sanders in the studio to talk about Ziegfeld's Boy and Folly's Girl. Welcome to 3CR. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. It is so exciting. It's a smoke and mirrors uh, joint production, if you like. They're on, you know, they're they're not the same production, but they're all part of the same stable. If a you double like. bill. Yes. It's a double yes. bill. A good old fashioned is- double bill. That's right. How'd you two get together? Ooh, oh, I, actually, I remember how, how we first met. I don't know if you do. We met at Midsummer we did, uh, Pride March, Pride March one year. And, you know, we had followed each other both on social media for a while, both being um, being queer D-grade celebrities. We both knew of each other. But then uh, we were in the marshalling area in the crowds for Pride March and I looked at him and he looked at me and I, at the same time, I said, you're Josh Sanders. And he said, you're Mama Alto. I don't know. I don't know if you realise, but I was very starstruck at that point. Oh, I know. Yes. So, <laughs> yes, it was really fabulous. And, you know, we we're all sunburnt and dehydrated and preparing oh, to do the march. very hot day and, that day. But, you know, we were really bonding a lot over the years over our love of cabaret and, and but also of this kind of era of the showgirls and vaudeville and follies and the music halls and variety shows and the way that kind of MGM, Paramount, Golden Age of Hollywood did things inspired by that, you know, these kind of Busby Berkeley extravaganzas. So we, even though we've both been doing cabaret and theatre for years, we wanted to really do something that sat in that world, in that era, when we'd talked about it for years. And this is the result. Yes. Bit of old Hollywood for you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. All the glitter, all the sequins, all the feathers. So, Josh, tell us about some of the numbers you sing. Uh, yes. Oh, goodness me. So we've got, oh, they're all old classic songs. You know, we've got La Jazz Hot. Uh, we've got Heatwave, the Marilyn Monroe version. Um, and there's a few sort of lesser known songs in there too, but some real bangers. Um, I don't know if you know Anne Margaret. Yes, of course. Yes. The Swedish actress singer. Yes. Oh, amazing. Yes. Yeah, so we've got some of her songs as well. It's, yeah, it's a real hoot. Do you think and, anyone's ever referred to Anne Margaret as, as having bangers I think bangers. for the song? <laughs> it's very millennial meets Maybe not referring to Hollywood. her music, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating actually, because a few months ago, I was actually just playing around on the internet. I took some screenshots of her original uh screen test for Hollywood and she she had it yeah that was for State Fair which um, they were considering her for the romantic lead and then she just oozed this sexuality and I think they put her into a different role after that (laughs) so Mama what's your favourite song that you're performing in (gasps) Folly's Girl so you know I really what I well I love them all you know but the one that I'm really excited about I've performed it for years but never like this it's a wonderful old Tin Pan Alley era song that became a jazz standard and it's a lot of people do tap dances to it. It's a song called Tea for Two. And for years I've done my own jazz version of that song and just, you know, stood at the piano with the microphone standing still singing this song. But then I, when I went to Italy a, a little while ago, I went to this very famous tea salon, tea parlour, um, you know, drinking tea, um, although I am a beautiful tea, as we know, from the LGBTIQA+. But we were at the tea parlour drinking tea and I got talking to the owners and the people who worked there. It's been the same family since 1890. And we got friendly, we got chatting, and they, they guessed that I was a cabaret performer. I don't know if it's obvious or what, but they took one look at me and they said, and you're a performer? And I said, yes. They said, do you do burlesque and cabaret? I said, yes. You know, They took me up into the attic to show me a giant teacup. 
and then showed me the pictures from the 40s of the burlesque dancer who I couldn't quite understand everything because I don't have very good Italian, but there's some one of the members of the family and did this publicity stunt in the 40s for the tea parlour, doing a dance in the giant teacup. And, you know, it made me think of nowadays we see images of people like Dita Von Tees and, uh, and people like... Um, the captain from Briefs, which is a wonderful circus show that tours the world. And people will often do a burlesque act in a martini glass or a champagne coupe, a giant one. And so all of this kind of was mixing in my head. The song that I do, Tea for Two, that beautiful image and the beautiful, enormous porcelain teacup in this place, this little beautiful place in Rome. And then the image of a lot of uh, my contemporaries who do and superstars of our industry who do these acts with giant martini glasses, giant champagne glasses. So, you know, people playing along at home can probably guess where this is going, but you'll have to come see the show for the big reveal. <laughs> how big <laughs> How big was the teacup? The one that she sat in, you know, kind of roughly human-sized, you know. It's enough... Enough for your derriere to perch in, but to have your beautiful, long fishnet stocking legs hanging out. Josh, your production sounds incredibly, <laughs> incredibly a great segue because I can imagine your legs just jutting out uh, because your productions are very physical. Yes, yes, it is. And, you know, we have a similar number in ours. So, um, feathers and flesh. Feathers and flesh. But we have a we have a bathtub number in ours. Wow, because so. you've got a lot of flesh in your production. There's a lot of flesh. I'm astounded the costumes are so expensive considering how little fabric they involve. <laughs> All the jewels, I think, must be, yes. But no, but we, we do a, a whole number in a bathtub um, where I'm just covered by by some bubbles, um, which is an homage to uh, Lena Horne. Lena so, Horne, um, yes. Yeah, again, harking back to those MGM musicals. Um, but yes, that's probably my favourite number in the show, I think. It sounds incredibly camp. It's yes. very camp, very I mean, over the top. It's all part of Midsummer Festival. So it's camp, it's queer, it's glamorous, it's positive, it's skin positive, body positive, sex positive. So... That's part of the spirit of Midsummer Festival, after all. And you know that that um, that style is—it's so much about the aesthetic. It's about beauty. It's about um, uh, what's the word? Um, and being over the top and yes. so, and stepping into the spotlight and saying, "I'm beautiful, no matter what. I'm going to show you. I'm going to cover it in rhinestones and feathers, yes. and you're going to like it." It's a spectacle. <laughs> So your production sounds incredibly trans-positive as well. That's the message that I think you're giving. Every room when I step into it becomes (laughs) trans-positive. And you love it. I mean, yes. it's, it's your life. It's your world. You yes, are you are yes. a role model. You oh, are, thank you. <laughs> you're just so much to the community. I've got to thank ask you. you. I mean, you're a veteran too of Midsummer. Yes. How does this Midsummer feel to you as we as we enter it? You know what I think is really interesting with Midsummer particularly, and last year as well, we're coming into this COVID new normal. We're all trying to do our best to protect each other. Um, people wearing masks and coming to events with masks. You know, mine's on the desk just now, so I can talk into the microphone, but coming in here. And, you know, everyone's still figuring out their comfort levels for going to big events and for going to live theatre. And what I think is really great, you know, there's a lot of the big Midsummer events are outdoors. Uh, so it's much more COVID safe to be in the open air, to be at some of these events like Extravaganza and Carnival and Pride March and Victoria's Pride Street Party. And then we have events, um, you know, the program's open access program full of amazing artists putting on independent shows. And um, being part of 
a festival like Midsummer that's so supportive of artists makes it less scary and risky in this COVID new normal to put on an independent show rather than if you just put it on at a random time of the year without being part of the big festival program. And I think it's important for people coming along to all the shows, you know, like ours is at Chapel Off Chapel, which is a good space. It's a well-ventilated space. But the community, we all have to come together and know that everyone's comfort levels are different. So some people might be wearing masks and some people might not be hugging in the foyers and some artists might not be doing meet and greets after the show. And that's okay because, you know, some of us have chronic illnesses. Some of us care for people who are older. Some people have young babies for whatever reason, you know. So it's all about... I think having the shows in this festival context where we already are coming together as a community and showing our love and our pride is a great thing for us to be able to bring that community care element in and a nice reminder that we're all in it together. Because that's every performer's yeah. worst nightmare, I imagine, before you know this wonderful festival kicks off. It's the safety of, of, of the patrons, but also the performers and the fear of getting COVID before a show yeah. must be dreadful. Yes, yes, it is. It is. Josh has just recovered. I, yes, I, I got it last week or nearly two weeks ago. And two weeks, I yeah. thought to myself, oh, my gosh, perfect timing. Um, but, no, I'm feeling much better, ready to go for the show. So it actually worked out quite well. I think I'll be fully recovered by the time the show comes along. So. And, I mean, look, you know, thank God it didn't happen on the eve of your performance. Yes, it could have been much worse. Mm. How did it impact on you psychologically knowing that you've got the festival coming up and that happens? Oh, it's... Oh, I was a ball of anxiety because um, I last time I had COVID, I had it quite badly for quite a few months. And um, yeah, when when I tested positive, I thought, oh my gosh, am I going to have to, am I going to be able to do the show? Am I going to have to cancel the show? Um, it It's, yeah, it's a, it's a scary thing. Um, and it's a big unknown because there's still so much we don't know about COVID. Mm. Um, but yes, I'm very, very lucky that I've um, recovered very quickly this time ah, around. Yeah. But I mean, I'm hopeful from it in the arts, but also with a kind of disability justice perspective or framework, you know, living as a person with chronic illness and disability, I think that something that's missing in society in general, not just in the arts, is the kind of flexibility and the kind of grace for each other, knowing that we're human beings and not machines, knowing that we're biological organisms that get fatigued and get sick and get tired and have pain. And the pace, the relentless pace at which our society pushes to be productive and get things done and always perform at superhuman levels. You know, so I kind of said to Josh at the time, well, you've got a bathtub number in the show. If you end up doing the whole show lying down, why is that a problem? You know, we've got these concepts about how we should be in the world that are deeply ableist. So I think my hope for the COVID new normal in the arts and in society in general is we will have more flexibility, more accessibility, more grace for each other. In some of the other shows that I'm working with, someone had a different kind of, not related to COVID, but one of their chronic conditions and a severe injury flaring up and said, no, I can't be in the show anymore because my part in the show was as a dancer. And I said, but what difference does it make if you're dancing in a chair? You know, we're breaking boundaries every day in the arts around being proud and queer. We can do the same for everything else and honour our bodies and honour our fatigue and honour our pain. So I'm hopeful that things will change in this COVID new normal. <laughs> What's the biggest takeaway message you want people to have from your production, Folly's Girl? Oh, I think, you know, be the icon you want to see in the world. Take everything from the inside and cover it in rhinestone and feathers and be as fabulous as you want to be. And, uh, 
you know, that, that's at the heart of it. We could talk about social justice. We could talk about all of the heavy academic concepts and critiques that go into that and how you achieve it. But at the end of the day, it's also about loving life and loving who you are and loving each other and being covered in your own fabulousness. <laughs> how about you, Josh? What's your take-home message from Ziegfeld? Yeah, well, uh, boy. yes, um, I think there's many layers to it. But at the end of the day, I'm a firm believer in the idea that if I can, if I can take someone who's had a horrible day, who's had a horrible week, who's had a horrible start to the year, and they can come and watch the show for an hour and walk out feeling happy, smiling, feeling positive about the world, then that's what I want for this show is that I want to be able to turn someone around who's who's feeling sad or feeling down and put a smile on them, their face and make them feel happy. That's that's my aim for this show. Mama, I have to ask you, there's been some pretty big news in the community this week, especially from a trans performance point of view, and that is the, the pending closure of Hairs and Hyenas uh, at the start of mm, March. The closure um, of the hair hole, yes. Hair hole so there was yes. a transitional period when the business was um, splitting uh, and the Hares and Hyenas bookshop wing is at the Pride Centre and the Fitzroy uh, campus was going to continue as Hare Hole as a performance venue and community space. And, of course, that kind of uncoupling of the two facets of the venue was so it was so well planned and it was going to happen and there was you know months and months of performances lined up and community events lined up to happen some fabulous grants to run some festivals and events and then covid happened so for a venue that had previously had that dual income stream of a bookshop and a performance venue community space to suddenly be hit with that pandemic and try and recover and rebuild as a venue in this covid new normal has been such a struggle and Crusader and Dawn and Kyle and the whole team there have put in such a valiant effort. We Both of us were involved in a lot of the fundraising performances last year in July and August and so much money was raised through the, through the uh, online crowdfunding but also through so many different performers through so many fundraising performances where we all donated our time and all the ticket costs were going into their hair hole. But the nature of the pandemic on small businesses meant that there was essentially 18 months of debt, you know, from time when there was not much income coming in. And that's the nature of late capitalism, I think, too, is, you know, there was no income coming in, but there were still bills um, mounting up over that time that now that people are claiming the pandemic's over, even though we know that its impact is long lasting, uh, there's all these bills to pay. Um, It's, you know, it's a really tragic situation there's a legacy um, of hairs and hyenas and the hair hole together for over 30 years as an incubator for queer artists so many people got their opportunities and their start there so many people continued to perform there even after they were finding success elsewhere and it's really been a home for so many people community groups as well as artists as well as a place for people to rest and recover and So it's been a very tough time for everyone and my heart really goes out to everyone involved who's tried so hard for the last two years to fundraise and keep it going. Uh, It's been an uphill struggle. Um, You know, it's devastating. I cried when I found out uh, earlier this week. But my hope is that the legacy will also then go to remind us just how precarious and tenuous our precious 
independent arts spaces and queer spaces are and that we just have to continue as a community to keep them alive, you know. And you are both doing that with your superb, sublime Midsummer Productions, Ziegfeld Boy and Folly's Girl. Give us those details. Well, so uh, I follow Ziegfeld Boy actually opens on the 2nd and Folly's Girl opens on the 3rd of February. And we are both at Chapel of Chapel. Uh, if you And book, running across that whole weekend. Yes, running across that weekend. If you book tickets for both, you get 50% off the second show. It is a double bill after all. Yes. And so it's on at Chapel of Chapel as part of Midsummer Festival. Fantastic. Well, Josh Sanders and Mama Elto, it's been an absolute privilege to have you both in the studio at 3CR. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you for having us. Jacob is up next for the Friday Rave. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.